Welcome to Concord Matters, a show seeking for concord, agreement in Christian confession. Concord mattered to Jesus and Paul, and so it does to us also. Spend these next 60 minutes as we talk matters of Concord. Concord Matters, a program produced by the Christ-Centered Leader in Confessional Broadcasting. Worldwide KFUO, online at kfuo.org. And welcome to Concord Matters, the show where we seek to be of one mind, that is the mind of Christ, and to do that, a couple of Christ-confessing Concordians confer with the Book of Concord to conform what we believe, teach, and confess according to Scripture in our Lutheran Confession of the Faith. On today's show, we are continuing our series, The Catechized Life, and we will begin our look at the Lord's Prayer today. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith, pastor of the Evangelical Lutheran Dual Parish of Emmanuel West Point in St. Paul's Wine Hill in Southern Illinois. And our catechist for this series is Pastor Mark Bestel. He is pastor of Calvary Lutheran Church in Elgin, Illinois. All right, Pastor Bestel, as we get into the Lord's Prayer here, I think an important first thing to cover is why does Martin Luther and his layout of the small catechism and also the large catechism then as well, place the Lord's Prayer at this point? We've covered the Ten Commandments. Well, you even started us out and how we get into the Ten Commandments and really get into the catechism. And when you covered the Ten Commandments, that's our first part of the catechism. Then we've covered the creed and we even saw a hinge between the Ten Commandments to the creed and how that's a natural progression. And so now help us out here. What's our progression into the Lord's Prayer? Why is the Lord's Prayer a logical next place to go? Sure, Sean. Uh, the visual that I like to give regarding the Lord's Prayer, and I, when I do my teaching, I tend to enjoy using visuals. So with the Ten Commandments, we sort of had the visual of the separation syndrome and that visual image that helped us understand the place of the Ten Commandments in the Catechism. Uh, perhaps less emphasized, but still a little bit of a visual, is in the creed, ushering in the creed by first focusing on Christ, and then that second article of the creed sort of, if you will, blowing up or opening up our picture to the entirety of the Holy Trinity. And now, as we look to the Lord's Prayer, and as the student of the Catechism might ask, well, why this next step? The visual that I like to give is is almost turning the titles of the catechism into a little mathematical equation, that if the Ten Commandments is the law regarding the holy God, and if the creed is the gospel all about God's merciful goodness, then the Lord's Prayer is, if you will, law plus gospel equals daily life. And so the Ten Commandments plus the creed equals the Lord's Prayer. Or another way to to look at it is that the Lord's Prayer is the practice of everything that has so far been put in place. It is the baptismal life, and we'll get into baptism in the second half of the catechism, uh, but it's really the reality or the daily life of the baptized and understanding how law and gospel, the law and gospel of God is proclaimed to us in the whole counsel of God. That law and gospel really governs and directs and informs and teaches and instructs and carries daily life. In Luther's large catechism, he says that the opening statements of the fourth section on baptism, he says, in the first three sections, we have now discussed everything having to do with 
the entirety of Christian doctrine. And therefore, we should understand that the first two sections lead into the third section in a very natural progression, or the first two chief parts, Ten Commandments and Creed, lead into the Lord's Prayer in a very natural progression. And that progression really is one in which, again, you've got God's Word being proclaimed, God's Word being taught, and now in the Lord's Prayer, you see that culminating in God's Word being used and, if you will, echoed back to Him in prayer. And so that catechesis even takes the form of praying back to God what God has given us. And so this this is a great visual to begin with, I think, because it ties in well to even the broader mental image of the whole small catechism. And I suppose we can get into this when we finish out the whole catechism and we sort of take a look back at it. But by then, people will perhaps have forgotten the image, so I'll use it today, that when you look at the first three chief parts, the Ten Commandments, the Creed and the Lord's Prayer, you have the divine word. And then in the second three chief parts, you have the divine acts, baptism, absolution, the Lord's Supper. And those first three chief parts and those second three chief parts, if you were to summarize word plus sacraments, that equals faith in God and fervent love toward one another, sections two and three, the daily prayers, the table of duties. So in the same way that that mathematical visual equation is a picture of the whole catechism and the relationship of the whole catechism to one another. Here, in a sort of a smaller, simpler equation, you also have the first three chief parts related to one another in this way. The law plus the gospel equals the Word of God practiced and depended upon in daily life. So, Ten Commandments plus Creed equals the Lord's Prayer. And so, a life of prayer built on these first three chief parts. So as we think of daily life, we ought first consider what a beautiful treasure God has given us in prayer, in and for daily life. If he builds his instruction of the Ten Commandments and his promises of the gospel and his goodness toward us, if he builds that up so that he even commands us that in prayer we can come to him depending upon that, then it is a great treasure to have this prayer in and for daily life. We often think of God's care being what people might term Sunday-based, meaning that it's all about word and sacraments. And certainly it's true that our life sort of revolves around that Sunday morning. It depends upon, it's anchored in that divine hour. It is truly a divine hour in which the holy God, the holy, holy, holy one comes to his people and serves them and cares for them, forgives them, sustains them, and sends them out into the week ahead. But that doesn't mean that we're without God's care during the other six days of the week. We have our baptismal identity in which we have his word, and his word teaches us how to pray. And so in that prayer, we can appeal directly to God and know that he lends us his ear. And that's a very important treasure and instrument and tool to have in daily life. But we have to be very careful how we speak of prayer and how we understand prayer. The large catechism begins this section on the Lord's Prayer first with paragraph after paragraph of just a general overview of what prayer is and what it isn't, because perhaps in Luther's day, it's safe to say that people had a misunderstanding in prayer. And if it's safe to say that regarding the people of Luther's day, sadly, I think it's also safe to say that regarding folks in our day, especially in our American society, 
we have a very bad misunderstanding of prayer that probably is handed down to us by the influence of revivalism, uh, the influence of that sort of Americanized form of Christianity, which is all about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, uh, feeling the Holy Spirit, waiting for the Holy Spirit to speak directly to me through all of these different signs and wonders, but never through the means of grace that Christ instituted. And so how we understand prayer is very important to understand rightly if it is going to be a great comfort for us, comfort that God promises to hear us, but also a comfort to know how he actually answers us so that we do not be deceived into despair by having incorrect hopes regarding how God answers our prayer. Because prayer is not a sacrament, uh, and that's a very important thing for Lutherans to confess and to remember is that many American Christians out there almost use prayer in the same way that they would use the sacraments. And they would say that God is serving us in prayer in the same way that the scriptures say he is serving us in baptism and in the supper and the proclamation of the word. But remember that a sacrament, by definition, is what God gives to man. And a sacrifice, by definition, is what man gives to God. Prayer is what man gives to God. Certainly, God gives the open avenue, if you will, the open ear, the open invitation to pray. But prayer is about what man says to God based on God's command and promise, to be sure. But it's still that which man pleads to God. Um, we sometimes use phrases about prayer as it being a conversation with God. We even have a hymn in our hymnal in Lutheran service book, hymn number 772, entitled In Holy Conversation. Have to be careful with that term. God does not answer us in prayer the way that people sometimes want to believe, as if I would say something to God and then he would immediately answer back in a way that I can hear, even if, as people say, I felt it on my heart or I heard God say to me, we have to be very careful about whether or not the scriptures promise that that's actually how God would respond. He does answer prayer, but he answers it through means. The hymn that I mentioned, hymn 772 there in LSB, In Holy Conversation, it even rightly includes this phrase in its hymn, quote, With care our Father listens to every thought expressed, then answers our petitions in ways he knows is best. Notice the implication there, that beyond the prayer, and outside the prayers, quote-unquote, conversation is where the Christian ought know that God is going to answer it. So the Christian ought not look to the prayer itself and say, where in here is God answering me? Because, of course, the prayer originated with man, in a sense. that It is man's plea, man's petition, as we hear in um, Philippians chapter 4, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Uh, and so if these are our requests, if these are our pleas, if these are the items that weigh most heavily on us, then in that sense, it begins with us, that prayer does, and yet it is open invitation from God to appeal to him as he has commanded it and as he promises it. And so we have to have that right understanding that when he comes to answer prayer, we will find that answer, if you will, in outward signs, that prayer is not answered within my heart prayer is answered outside of me, and that's a very comforting thing. He does not answer our prayer just by making us strong in the faith, 
but he answers our prayer also by providing for us and caring for us in ways that very much deal with what we've already talked about in the first article of the Creed, in the third article of the Creed, God caring for us in temporal things in daily life by his fatherly goodness, those temporal things like daily bread, vocation, our neighbor's love. For our spiritual need, he gives us his Holy Spirit, his Holy Word, his sacraments, pastoral care, the pure doctrine of Christ. But the scriptures never say that God speaks to us right in the prayer. And so we, to give a, another little visual, prayer is not a two-way street. It's a one-way street. It's a very comforting one-way street to know that God hears us. And as St. Paul says, he will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. But notice in that passage again, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. Why does it surpass all the understanding? Because we don't always see it work out in the way that our understanding would be looking for it. But it surpasses all understanding, and it will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That's a very important last phrase. He does not work apart from the promises he has made to us in Christ Jesus, just as the Holy Spirit does not work apart from the word and promises of Christ Jesus. And we talked about that when we talked about the third article of the Creed, that the Holy Spirit is always pointing us to Christ. In prayer, we are always depending upon Christ as our great intercessor between God and man. And therefore, we ought never think that God is all of a sudden going to immediately respond to prayer in a way that goes beyond what he has promised us in his fatherly goodness, first article of the creed, or in the Holy Spirit pointing us to Christ Jesus, second and third articles of the creed. So in Christ Jesus, in his word, through the work he's given the Spirit to do in word and sacrament, through temporal means, uh, and not through, in a sense, direct revelation, which is how a lot of American Christians want to think of God's answer to prayer, that he will just answer with this direct revelation, or in what they refer to often as, God put it on my heart. Uh, scripture never says that that's exactly how God works in prayer, so we have to be very careful with that. So if prayer is not about getting an immediate answer from the great vending machine in the sky, then why does God command us to make use of this means of appealing to him? Uh, in the simplest way, I think we ought respond that God commands it. He commands it to remind us he is God, that in our troubles we should appeal to him and not to our own devices. It hearkens us back to, or it brings us back to the second commandment and to some of the passages that tie in so well with the second commandment uh, from Psalm 50, call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you and you will glorify me. We need that reminder that it is God who delivers us. And again, not our own weapons, not our own devices, not even the power of my faith, right? Sometimes when people like to speak of prayer, they like to speak of the power of prayer or they like to speak of strength in numbers when it comes to prayer, or they like to say, pastor, will you pray for me? Because if you pray for me, then God will hear you, uh, as if prayer is more beneficial based on status. The scriptures never say anything about that. We've built up those misconceptions 
perhaps by outside influences, by what other Christians have said or taught about prayer, or maybe even televangelists, because they have a misunderstanding of prayer, that it's a very tempting way to think of it because it puts a lot of control in people and their ability to pray and saying, boy, this ability to pray, this is what's really going to bring me uh, not only comfort, but control in the situation. That's not what the scripture promises. Think of some of those passages where Jesus says things like against the idea of the power of prayer or the power of faith. Jesus hints that uh, you can have faith the size of a mustard seed and can move mountains. Why? Because it's not the faith or the size of faith or the size of prayer that matters, but rather the one to whom we appeal, the one in whom faith is grounded, the one to whom prayer appeals. There is the power. Uh, And so it's not so much the power of prayer or the power of the prayer, but it's the power of the one who hears the prayer and the promises of the one who answers the prayer as he sees fit. Same thing with the idea of strength in numbers in prayer. Certainly as Christians, we ought pray for one another. And it's very comforting when the whole congregation gathers around the altar of God and prays for a fellow uh, member in need, uh, prays for the community, prays for the whole world. And yet it's not strength in numbers that we should look to. But when Jesus teaches us to pray, he even talks about the idea that you can go into your closet and pray in private. Uh, Well, you don't have your entire congregation crammed into your closet praying with you. It's not strength in numbers. It's strength in the one who hears the prayer. So the power is in Christ. The power is in the command of God and in the promises of God. It's not in the status of the one who prays but in the status of the one who hears and answers prayer. And that's a very comforting thing. I myself, little old me, not capital M me like in idolatry, but little old sinful me who is broken and sometimes despondent and despairing, I can appeal to God and he will hear my prayer just as truly and thoroughly and consider the prayer just as readily as when 100 people pray together or when 100 pastors pray together, because prayer is not about me getting God's attention as if God is disinterested in me until my prayer is really worth listening to. Prayer is not about me having to speak eloquently enough for God to hear me or to speak long enough or pleading with tears and long suffering enough to get God to hear me as if otherwise he's disinterested. And neither is prayer about getting God to do what I want him to do. It's about me calling upon him in the faith that he, and not capital M me, but he is God and will care for me as he sees fit. Martin Luther then teaches these basic principles in the large catechism when he starts that whole discussion on the Lord's Prayer with sort of this general overview that we're doing right now, and he basically breaks that general overview up into three sections. The layout is first, God's command that we should pray because God commands it, and what God commands we should treat as no joke, but we have a duty, and we are duty-bound to uphold his command. Secondly, that we have his promise. His promise is to be believed. In fact, here I've got a a wonderful quote here from the large catechism. He says, In the second place, we should be more encouraged and moved to pray because God has also added a promise and declared that it shall surely be done for us as we pray. 
And we'll get into that as we go through the Lord's Prayer, and that as we pray, we are always praying in Christ's name and according to God's will. And so it will surely be done for us whatever we ask in Christ's name. And therefore, we can pray with this great confidence because of the promise. So first, Luther sets up in his layout the command, then the promise, and then he sets out the idea of daily habits, that if we have this command and promise, then we should encourage ourselves to get into the daily habit of prayer. I often, in my instruction, leave this part of it to the section of the daily prayers in section two after the six chief parts. And when we talk about daily prayers, we talk about some of the habits involved in daily prayer. And there's some wonderful things when we get to that section of the small catechism. There are wonderful little nuances in there. And yet I think just for today's purposes, we can sort of preview that whole section by simply pointing out that Luther encourages us to start simple with a prayer life. Don't try to go from zero to hero when it comes to your prayer life, or don't try to just become a professional, if you will, as people, you know, they'll say, well, I'll start a new hobby and I expect myself to be a pro at it in a week. Well, that's not going to happen. Start simple. And in starting simple, uh, you can build up based on God's promises and God's command, and you can encourage those daily habits that start simple and they will eventually become more, oh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, uh, more uh, thorough, I suppose, is the word to look at, and perhaps uh, more intensive. Uh, but start simple with prayer. We teach our kids to start simple. We teach them a basic common table prayer that is so simple for them. It even rhymes for them so that they can retain it very easily. But as we go on in prayer, then we will have other prayers that perhaps we pray. And yet all of prayer should always be grounded in this Lord's Prayer, or certainly in the Catechism. You know, uh, Luther, when he talks about the Catechism, and he talks about the idea of learning how to pray. He even tells Master Peter the Barber in a letter that he wrote to Master Peter or a little booklet he wrote for Master Peter. He wrote to him about the instructive, formative quality of praying. And he wrote about this four strands of garland that is a prayer and how one can pray the small catechism through these four strands of garland. And these four strands of garland then keep me focused not on praying my will be done, but on praying thy will be done. And so just real briefly, then the four strands of garland, the first one was instruction, right? And all that we think about as we read the small catechism, there is godly instruction in all of it. And so we can pray very simply that God would bless us in the instruction that he gives. The second strand is thanksgiving. Think of how often we forget to pray in thanksgiving. When something urgent comes up, we jump right into prayer because we urgently feel the desperation of our situation. And then as soon as the situation is resolved, we almost think that the situation resolved itself and that I really didn't need to pray, rather than realizing that, no, God answered the situation and God resolved the situation, and therefore I ought to offer up prayers of thanksgiving. We should pray in terms of confessing our sins. That's the third strand of garland that Luther uses in praying the uh, small catechism, to confess my sins, to see as I meditate upon the small catechism, to see where I, my Christian life has failed in regard to these things, and therefore I ought to confess my sins. And then fourthly, the petition for blessing. That to ask God to bless us as we go forward, to carry our daily life. All of this can be done boldly 
because it, prayer is not built on the quality of me, but prayer is built on the quality of God's command and God's promise. And therefore, I can very boldly go forward with prayers based on the instruction, the thanksgiving, the confession of sins, the petition for blessing. And I can create then a daily habit of prayer, again, as we'll see is when we get into section two of the small catechism. So all of that background helps us understand that the Lord's Prayer, as Jesus' very specific answer to the disciples' question when they ask, Lord, teach us to pray, his answer is about teaching us to flee to God, to find refuge in God, and depend upon his good and holy will for our daily life. And his good and holy will, having been made in the first two chief parts, right, the Ten Commandments and the Apostles' Creed, there we see his good and holy will and his merciful goodness in the Creed. Jesus can now teach us about prayer in general and about the Lord's Prayer specifically, that it's not about outward customs, bow your head, fold your hands, close your eyes. It's about the content that keeps us fixed on God's good and holy will for our daily lives. So Jesus says, when you pray, say this. And if Jesus teaches this, then how can we improve upon it? How can we improve upon the Lord's Prayer? It is the perfect prayer. It is the best of prayers. We can pray other prayers, especially where time of great need or anxiety may compel us to think of only one need, right? We might all of a sudden hear of a sick loved one and say, oh God, my loved one is ill, care for them. That's perfectly good and right and salutary. But we may always, even if subconsciously, ground that urgent plea in that perfect prayer as Jesus teaches us to pray the Lord's Prayer. We simply can't improve upon the Lord's Prayer, for God himself gave it to us, and he said, say this. Uh, Real quickly, I think of the story of when I used to play in a men's softball league. Our church decided to enter a softball league back in uh, California where I grew up, and they uh, thought that we weren't like to play with the teams that were, uh, you know, in all the in all the secular divisions and all the cursing and swearing and cussing, and so they put us in the uh, church league. And uh, sadly, with some of the theology we heard in the church league, I think I would have rather put up with some of the cussing. Uh, but one of the things that they made us do is they made us gather before and after the games to pray together. And when it was the other team's terms, most of these teams were revivalist in nature. But they prayed very long drawn out, heartfelt prayers that just kept going and going. And certainly where the theology is right, there's nothing wrong with that. But then when we would pray, almost always we simply prayed the Lord's Prayer as Jesus taught us to pray. (laughs) And there were actually a few times where you actually heard sort of audible sighs that we weren't trying hard enough in our prayer life because we were using the Lord's Prayer. But to our listeners, I would say this, this is the joy of the Lord's Prayer. Prayer is not about me having to try hard enough to get God's attention. It's about me saying to him, you have commanded that I pray, and you have promised to hear it. And therefore, here are the very words you have given me, and I appeal to you to care for me as you see fit. That's just a wonderful comfort as we start to look into the Lord's Prayer. Which is what we're going to pick up when we come back from break here in just a minute. But before we go to break, I want to throw out there, you mentioned that Luther's booklet to Master Peter the Barber, and that's actually available. Uh, A lot of our listeners may be familiar with this, but that's actually available from Concordia Publishing House, and it's translated by Pastor Matt Harrison, who, of course, is our synodical president. And it's called A Simple Way to Pray, and it's real inexpensive. And it's a great resource that I've used 
in my pastoral practice to encourage and train people how to pray. You know, we are called to do this as Christians. And that in combination with what we learn here in the catechisms under the Lord's Prayer certainly does form a faithful prayer life. And so I just wanted to give that recommendation. Of course, as I say all the time on this show, we'll gladly uh, promote things that come from Concordia Publishing House. We get no kickback or anything like that. But that is a great resource. And since you brought it up, I just thought I'd mention that where someone can find that for themselves. And it's just a beautiful resource. So when we come back then from break here, we will take up an overview of the Lord's Prayer a little more in depth. Great foundation here on the nature of prayer and the progression of the catechism into the Lord's Prayer. And then we'll pick up that overview of the Lord's Prayer. And then in succeeding shows, we'll dig into some of the petitions a little deeper as well. So this is the Catechized Life with our catechist, Pastor Mark Bestel. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith, and we'll take up an overview of the Lord's Prayer on the other side of the break. You're listening to Concord Matters on KFUR. You're a miracle. You know that, right? A living, breathing, one-of-a-kind miracle. You were created to stand apart, to share your gifts in the service of others, to make an uncommon impact in a common world. And at Concordia University, it's our mission to help you do that, to live uncommon. To learn more about Concordia, go to cuw.edu. Welcome back to Concord Matters as we continue our series, The Catechized Life. And today, beginning our look at the Lord's Prayer with our catechist, Pastor Mark Bestel. And Pastor Bestel, in the first segment of the show, you set up for us how the Lord's Prayer falls into its place following the Ten Commandments and the Creed. And then you gave us a great overview of prayer, a lot of great thoughts in there. I give a hearty amen to all of that as we talk about prayer that, yes, I, I say this is so, this is good teaching on that. So thank you for that. And now as we will, in subsequent episodes, as I set up before the break, we'll pick up digging into the specific petitions a little deeper, but go ahead and take us back again and give us an overview of the Lord's Prayer and how that ties in to what we've seen in the Ten Commandments and the Creed as you set up for us in the first segment. Happy to, Sean. The visualization that I like to use with this is, again, you know, as I sort of did this with the separation syndrome, I encourage folks, all right, grab a piece of paper, grab a pen, and just sort of write this out. And in this visualization, I set up each chief part as a column. And I point out that if you have the Ten Commandments first, and then the Creed in the middle, and then the Lord's Prayer over on the right— and then you start pointing arrows back and forth to each other in the different parts of it, you'll see just how beautifully all of this weaves together, which we should expect. After all, this is all Christ's doctrine. This is all God's word. There's nothing in these things that are somehow supplementary to the word of God. This is all right from Christ's own teaching. As Luther one time referred to, the pure doctrine of Christ is sort of that golden ring that is not just a chain of, of successive links, as if you could take out one link and put the chain back together. No, you, it's just a pure golden ring, and you can see all of that tied together so nicely. And so when you compare these three, 
and you see them sort of working together to define for the listener, define for the studier of the small catechism, define for the reader of the scriptures their daily life in Christ. It's a beautiful thing. So left-hand column, Ten Commandments, middle column, the Creed, right-hand column, the Lord's Prayer. And then if you go down the left-hand column, you list out the Ten Commandments. First commandment, you shall have no other God. Second commandment, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. And all the way down through the Ten. And then over on the right-hand column, we'll keep the middle column blank for right now. Over on the right-hand column, start listing out the successive lines of the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, there's the introduction, and then the first petition, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, all the way down there. And as you start to look at these, and as you start to lay these out, uh, you can sort of look at an overview, and you're right, in subsequent episodes, we'll really dig into each of these petitions. But we can sort of ask a generic question of how do these petitions and sort of their overall view, how do they tie in with the theology that has been given to us beforehand? And this exercise is perhaps something that I've illustrated in this way, but it's certainly not unique to my own thought and my own way of thinking this. But Luther would often do this. For example, there's another great CPH publication out there, Praying the Psalms with Luther. And it's amazing that in almost every psalm that Luther comments on when he comments on it, he comments not only on something out of the Lord's Prayer, but then something often matching it, something out of the Ten Commandments. And it almost seems like there's always a reference to the Ten Commandments and a reference to the Lord's Prayer because they mirror each other so well. And then, of course, all of that tension, because, of course, the Ten Commandments are about the holiness of God's will. And in the Lord's Prayer, as we get into it, as we're praying the Lord's Prayer, part of what we're being reminded is that we are not holy. And so the, that tension between the two is addressed and is calmed and is comforted by the gospel found in the creed. So as we get into these and as we see this, that's sort of what we're going to find when we walk through this. So if you look at the first line of the Lord's Prayer, our Father who art in heaven, beautiful first line, very Trinitarian first line, actually. You know, sometimes kids understandably will ask, well, how come we don't end the prayer? Or how come nowhere in the prayer do we say in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, or anything like that? But when we pray the words, our Father, we can only pray those words, as we talked about a few episodes ago, we only know God as Father when we properly know his Son. And this is a very comforting thing for us then to be able to appeal to him as Father, which is a reminder of our baptismal life in Christ, that before this and apart from this, we only know him as the Almighty. That's how he's referred to in the Apostles' Creed, or simply as God, apart from whom there is no other, right? That's sort of the Ten Commandment reference to him. Uh, you shall have no other gods before me, says our triune God. Uh, and so it's it's first in the Lord's Prayer that we hear this very endearing term, that we can actually appeal to him as our Father. And so we have that first line there. And yet, as we've already hinted at, that first line matches up so well with the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. Well, that me there that is speaking is not just the Father, but it's the entirety of the Holy Trinity. And so when we think of this first line, that we cannot come to the Father apart from Christ, and yet we cannot appeal to Jesus as Lord except by the work of the Holy Spirit. 
And so it actually is, even though subtle and even though not necessarily right on the face of it, nevertheless, it is a very Trinitarian plea when crying out in the Lord's Prayer and crying out as Jesus has taught us, our Father who art in heaven. And that matches up so well then with the first commandment that there really, again, as I've said throughout the series, there really are only two gods. We either appeal to the one true God or everything else is capital M, me. Uh, And sometimes when we pray this first line of the Lord's Prayer, we are being reminded that maybe this prayer was slow in coming and I put all of my effort in what capital M, me, could provide up to this point. And now as sort of a last ditch effort, I appeal to the one true God rather than constantly appealing to capital M, me, as the false God. The second line of the Lord's Prayer, the first petition, hallowed be thy name, well, uh, just look at the words and how that very commonsensically, or common, you know, however, however you would say that as, a, as an adverb, uh, how that in common sense just lines up well with the second commandment. The second commandment, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Well, how do we use the name of the Lord our God? We use it in, in our baptismal life. We use it by calling upon him in prayer, as we sort of hinted at the first half of this hour, that prayer is a natural part of the baptismal life. And so when we pray, hallowed be thy name, as Luther says in the explanation, we'll get into this probably next week, as he talks about in the explanation that God's name, it's certainly holy in and of itself. We're not praying that somehow we would make his name holy or that we're praying that, gee, God, we really hope that you can preserve your name as being holy. That's not at all what we're praying. But rather, when we pray the second line or this first petition of the Lord's Prayer, we're praying that it would be, as Luther says in the meaning there, that it would be kept holy among us also. It's really a prayer that reflects on our daily life, and it reflects on whether or not that daily life has kept God's name holy. And therefore, it fits in very well with that second commandment. The third line of the Lord's Prayer and the second petition is the petition, Thy kingdom come. This one's sort of confusing, I think, for folks, because whenever we hear of the word of God's kingdom, immediately our minds race to the end times, to Christ's second coming. Uh, He will come again to be our judge. Nothing wrong with understanding it that way. Luther even talks about that in the catechisms, that God's kingdom, in a sense, comes in two ways. Secondly, it comes when Christ reveals it all to us, when it comes at the end of time. But the way that we often forget that God's kingdom comes is when we think of it present tense. We often overlook the fact that God's kingdom is very active among us right now. When Jesus sends out the disciples and he sends them to the different towns and villages and he says, you know, when you stop at someone's house, if they receive you, well and good, go in there, bless the home and share the gospel with them. If they do not receive you, then shake the dust off your feet and say, nevertheless, the kingdom of God has come to this place. That can only happen if God's kingdom is a very present tense happening reality right now. Or as Jesus says, when he first comes on the scene, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's happening right now. It's imminent. Uh, One of my beloved professors at the seminary when I was going through those seminary years was uh, the sainted professor Kurt Marquardt. And I remember him one time talking about the idea that the kingdom of heaven 
is really a dimension that is all around us because God is everywhere and the kingdom of heaven is wherever God is. And therefore, he said, the kingdom of heaven is almost like if you could put your fingers in your hands into the other dimension and just pull back the curtain and there would be that other dimension kingdom, the kingdom of heaven all around us, and we would see it very presently. And yet when we pray, thy kingdom come, we're also praying very specifically for God to work his kingdom among us right here and now. And that happens in the spiritual gifts of the word and the sacraments. Think of how often we hear the parables uh, in the parables of Matthew 13 and similar chapters where Jesus says, how shall the kingdom of heaven be compared? And he says, the kingdom of heaven is like, the kingdom of heaven is like, and he uses that over and over and over again. And if we note carefully in those middle chapters in the Gospels, he says the kingdom of heaven is like present tense. And then he says at toward the end of Matthew's Gospel, in Matthew 25, I believe it is, or maybe it's 24, but 24, 25 right in there, and he says the kingdom of heaven will be like. And he's speaking there of the second coming and the glorious return. And so we should understand the kingdom of heaven as being a present tense reality Word and sacraments, the holy things of God, bringing to us the heavenly gifts of God that we can rightly say on a Sunday morning with angels and archangels and all the company of heaven. All of that is presently here because we are given heaven on earth in that divine hour. And that ties in really well, of course, with the third commandment, doesn't it? Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. And as we already discussed that commandment episodes ago. Certainly, we cannot make anything holy, but we can keep what already is holy. We can cherish what already is holy among us. And what already is holy among us is God at work. God at work in the Holy Word. God at work in the precious sacraments. And where God is at work, where the Holy Spirit is not only pointing us to, but giving us Jesus, and where the uh, righteousness of Christ is covering us and pouring out all of the treasures and bounty of his victory, there certainly is Sabbath rest, and there certainly is the kingdom of heaven. And therefore, these lines actually tie together really well when people understand that the kingdom of heaven is not just a future hope, though it is. Certainly, we look forward to the day when it will all be revealed to sight, and yet now we can live in it also by faith and know that the kingdom of heaven is at work among us. And so, as we'll get into these individual lines in episodes to come, that sort of gives us a little bit of a foretaste of that, that yes, this is a joyous thing to pray thy kingdom come. The next line, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, I think this is probably the most confused line of the Lord's Prayer, and it's probably the the one that would most trip people up in seeing any sort of relationship between the Lord's Prayer and its line-by-line application with the Ten Commandments. But when we pray this petition, we're praying, thy will be done on earth as it is done in heaven. This is the line that I think in our English language especially we've sort of misspoken over the years because we've learned to take a breath probably in the wrong place. If you do take a breath, you know, if you just test that, or the listener, if you test that of yourself at home and you pray, well, how do, how do I just naturally pray this without even thinking about it? We often will pray, thy will be done, take a breath, on earth as it is in heaven. And by doing that, I think we accidentally make a disconnect between what is actually being prayed here and how it lines up with the fourth commandment 
in the Ten Commandments, that when we pray, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, certainly, as Luther says in the Catechism, certainly God's will is done. And it's certainly done in the heavenly places. We know that. We're not praying for that. We're praying that it be done on earth. And I wonder why that breath mark has come into use in the congregational setting. I've wondered about that over the years. And, you know, at first I thought maybe it was uh, about just slowing down to see where everybody was at. Uh, I wonder actually if it has something to do with the sort of the rhythm and the rhyme of the lines before and after in the English. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. We like to rhyme in how we pray sometimes. Think of the table prayer, the common table prayer, and how rhythmic it is, how much it rhymes. And we like to attach ourselves to that thing because it makes it simple to remember. And perhaps, and I, I don't know the actual answer here, but just sort of conjecture, perhaps we are allowing ourselves to get caught up in the rhyme of those words in the English rather than understanding that the phrase, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, would better be understood if we would sort of do away with that breath mark. That's a hard thing to reteach once it's sort of been, you know, established in the life of the congregation. Uh, but I would urge people to at least think about that when they're thinking about this particular petition. Thy will be done on earth. And how is God's will done on earth when we think of daily life? Because again, remember, the Lord's Prayer is all about the Ten Commandments and the Creed being put together for daily life. And how is God's will done in daily life? Well, it's done when, as Luther says in the uh, meaning, when he breaks and hinders every plan of the devil. But how does he do that in daily life realities? Uh, he gives us office holders. He gives us vocations over us that help keep us guarded against that which is wrong and evil and off on the wrong track, keeps us focused on that which is good and right and godly. And so he gives us government, he gives us uh, family, he gives us the church. He gives us certainly and foremost the offices of father and mother. And as we discussed in our discussion on this commandment, every other aspect of office holder and vocation sort of gets their authority from that office of father and mother. And so when we think of the fourth commandment, honor thy father and thy mother, and we compare that to this line of the Lord's Prayer, thy will be done on earth as it is done in heaven. How is God's will done on earth? It's done when the authority that God has put in place over us is honored, cherished, kept, upheld, loved, right, as we saw in the, in the fourth commandment. Um, now we get to the last section here, give us this day, or the last line of these petitions, if you will, that seem to line up so well with the Ten Commandments. Give us this day our daily bread. And you look across your chart, and so far every arrow that has moved from the right-hand column to the left-hand column has hit directly on one commandment. But this one sort of summarizes the entirety of the second table. The entirety of the second table, commandments 5 through 10, again, as we discussed, the fourth commandment is sort of a hinge of, between the two tables. And so the entirety of the second table, commandments 5 through 10, can all be understood based on this petition, give us this day our daily bread. Why do we murder? Why do we commit adultery? Why do we steal? Why do we bear false witness? It's because we don't believe God has given us our daily bread as quickly or as thoroughly as we think we deserve it. And so when we get impatient with God, 
uh, when we get jealous, when we get greedy with God, then we start to take matters into our own hands. And so this petition, give us this day our daily bread, reminds us all good things come from above, right? Every good gift comes from above, from the Father of lights in whom there is no season of change, the apostle says. And so this is a wonderful petition to summarize for us the rest of the Ten Commandments. They're all found in there. In fact, when Luther talks about things that are included in daily bread, he includes things like a good reputation, Eighth Commandment. He includes things like uh, wife and children, Sixth Commandment, Fourth Commandment. He includes things having to do with the care of the body, Fifth Commandment, good neighbors, Seventh Commandment, property, all of those different things that have to do with the second table of the commandments. And so now that we've gone through, you know, about halfway through the Lord's Prayer, you can see how the first half of the prayer, Jesus is actually teaching us when we pray, he is teaching us to look back to the Ten Commandments and realize here is God's holy will. And it's here that we understand that all prayer is grounded on the phrase, thy will be done. Not just that petition in the Lord's Prayer, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, certainly there, but just generically, thy will, God's holy will, is what all prayer should be grounded on. Not my care, not the cares of me, capital M, me, but I can cast all my anxieties on the Lord for he cares for me and the peace of God, which surpasses my understanding, will keep me as he knows is best because he keeps me in Christ Jesus. So that gives me reason then, as we see all of this in light of the Ten Commandments, we look at the Ten Commandments and we go, ooh, this is not good. I have not kept these as I should. And therefore, this gives us reason to pray the next petition, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Forgive us. Forgive us because I look back across that column, back across the page to the column on the left, and I see that none of this have I kept. I have not lived my life this way. Maybe some of my anxieties have arisen because I have not lived my life this way. And so when I appeal to God, I see in that mirror of the Ten Commandments, I see my sin, and therefore Jesus teaches me to pray, forgive us. Forgive me for what I have done. Forgive us, certainly all sinners everywhere, but especially the Christian church. Forgive us our trespasses. Now, this gives us opportunity to say, well, where is the creed coming into all of this? Notice that all of the lines up to this point are really issues that come up in the first article of the creed. The fatherly goodness of God, the general governance and provision of God, all of that first article stuff can really be seen not only in the Ten Commandments and His Holy Will, but also in the top half of the Lord's Prayer. And if we would understand God's fatherly goodness, we would live in comfort, because we would understand that His Holy Will, the Ten Commandments, keep us attached to His fatherly goodness. But when capital M, me, starts in, when the old Adam starts in and starts to try to move away from the Holy Will of God and the fatherly goodness of God and be my own man, then I need forgiveness. Then I need a Savior then I need the Christ. And now in this line, forgive us our trespasses, here we see the second article, which then immediately ties in the third article, right? If I have Christ who gives me the confidence to appeal to forgiveness, then I can also pray the rest of this prayer, knowing that my loving God, the God who created me, the God who redeemed me, is also the God who's going to sanctify and keep me. And so now I can pray the final lines of the Lord's Prayer. 
forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us, right? Faith in God, fervent love toward one another. And if I have fervent love toward one another, if I have love toward my neighbor, not just the vertical relationship with God, but the horizontal relationship with my neighbor, even hearkening all the way back to Jesus fixing the separation syndrome, all of those things about sociological separation, then I can also pray with confidence regarding moving forward in life with faith in God and fervent love toward one another. And those forward-looking petitions by which the Holy Spirit keeps me and guards me in the Holy Christian Church with all believers and all the faithful, all my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, then I can pray, lead us. Lead us not into temptation. If Christ leads us, we will not fall into temptation. Where we follow Christ, Christ will care for us. Lead us not into temptation. This is a third article petition, isn't it? That the Holy Spirit calls me by the gospel, enlighten me with his gifts, sanctifies and keeps me in the Christian church and in the same way, every believer. Then lastly, so lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Here now is that end of the third article of the creed that talks about the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, the life everlasting, or as we see in the meaning of it, that on the last day, the Holy Spirit will raise me and all the dead, and he will give eternal life to me and all believers in Christ. This is most certainly true, and as we say it there, so also we say it here. Deliver us from evil, from everything that could separate us from Christ. Deliver us from all of that. That's a third article of the creed, uh, you know, sanctification-type prayer. And so now when you look across the whole page, on the left-hand side, Ten Commandments, God's Holy Will. On the right-hand side, the Lord's Prayer, as Jesus teaches us to reflect on daily life and to see God's will for it. And notice how now it is held together by this good and gracious God of ours, this God who created me, redeemed me, sanctifies me. And now all three chief parts blend together, and we see why Luther says, here's the totality of Christian doctrine. Here's the law. Here's the gospel. Here is law and gospel played out in and supporting and carrying daily Christian life. It's all right there in these three chief parts that every time we pray the Lord's Prayer, we have those echoes of the Ten Commandments, we have those echoes of the Creed, and we see that all of it gels together. And we should expect that it all gels together perfectly because Christ gave it to us. And Christ said, when you pray, say this. And therefore, with the utmost confidence at the end of the prayer, we can glorify God's name with the doxology and we can say, Amen. This is true. This is the truth. Remember when we began this whole conversation episodes ago, we said Christian doctrine really begins and ends with the question of what is truth and how is all of truth not only centered in but defined by the person of Jesus Christ. And now we can say at the end of the Lord's Prayer, Amen. This is the truth. This is the truth that Christ has established, that Christ has redeemed by his own blood, that Christ has secured us in by the Holy Spirit, that we have this loving God, this loving triune God, who binds his holy will to our prayer by being this God of the Apostles' Creed, and therefore in all of it, we see God's goodness in his care for us. That is a great overview for us, providing a Great roadmap, if you will, as we dig in in subsequent episodes here, deeper into those teachings that we get in each of those petitions and the introduction and conclusion as well. 
that we'll kind of see how this all fits together as sometimes what happens to us is we just get the individual teachings of each of the petitions and we don't see how it all fits together. And so great job there, Pastor Bestel, in leading us in to see how this fits in with the catechism and relates together to what we have already received in the Ten Commandments and the Creed. And then we'll go in deeper into each of these petitions. So that's our catechist, Pastor Mark Bestel. Thank you for continuing to lead us through this series, The Catechized Life. And thank you also, dear listener, for stopping by today. And until next time, keep confessing, church.